0: I just was reminded of the story about King Jehoshaphat when he was told that the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, this great uh, uh, multitude was coming against him and he lifted up a prayer for heaven and he, he called on the Lord as to, to, to how to deal with all of the forces of the world that were coming against him. And they rose early in the morning. I'm reading from Second Chronicles 20. This is verse 20. It says, And they rose early in the morning, and they went out into the wilderness of Tekoa, And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, "Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem! Believe in Yahweh your God, and you will be established. Believe His prophets, and you will succeed." And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to Yahweh and praise Him in holy attire, as they went before the army, saying, "Give thanks to Yahweh for His steadfast love endures forever." And when they began to sing and to praise Yahweh, set an ambush against the men of uh, Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Israel so that they were routed. Amen? Can we put the lights on? Amen? As we are praising, the you know, uh, there was another scripture that was hitting me is as we started off our, our praise and worship this morning. Uh, let me get there. This is in Psalm. This is in the book of Psalms. This is Psalm 2. It says this. It says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Does anybody else feel like that's what's going on in the world? The worlds are raging against God. They're, they're seeking to throw off his bonds, to cast him aside, to cast him away. Does anyone ever feel, you know, i, I tell you, maybe I should stop read, wa- reading the news. I don't really watch the news, I read it. And you, and you see all that's happening in the world, all of the hatred, all of the violence, all of the disease, all of the sickness, and, and all that's, you know, and, and the message that's, that's being pronounced is we need to get rid of, the, 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 the ways of the Bible, the ways of Scripture, the ways in which we walk right before God. We need to cast that out. We need to be done with that. We need to move on as a society to the new and better way. And it breaks my heart as I watch it. Does anybody else feel this way? And I'm reminded as I'm reading this psalm here, what is the next verse? It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That moment that I feel the most overwhelmed by what's in the world should be turned around and I should feel most overwhelmed for what's coming to the world should they not turn to him. I should not be overcome by the world, but seek to be a light in the world. You see, that brings us right to what we're going to talk about this morning. We are a part of something that is greater than ourselves. Let me say that again. We're a part of something that is greater than ourselves. That is, that, that. you know, it's one thing, I can open up a Bible passage and read a Bible passage and I can see it and I can say, yeah, amen, I agree with that. It's a whole nother thing to wake up in the morning and be faced with all the things we're faced with, all the trials, all the tribulations, the struggles at work, the struggles in relationships, the struggles in society, and go, how am I a part of something bigger than myself when I can't even feel like I can get through myself through the day? You see, our hope, isn't in the moment. Time is eternal. We're a part of something that is eternal. You know, I've heard this several times recently, and uh, unsolicited. I've been in several circumstances uh, in in which unsolicited somebody would bring up, or I would hear a message somewhere, or somebody say something. And and just and this was the message. Say, hey, you know the one thing you see in the Bible over and over and over again is that this thing we call the Christian life—it ain't easy. It's not easy. It's hard. But the problem is, is that's not been what most of us have heard as the gospel for a lot of our lives in certain circles, right? It's come to Jesus and all your problems are taken care of. Come to Jesus and it should get easy. Come to, Now, will he hear our prayers? Will he move on our behalf? Sometimes he takes us through the storm. Sometimes he gets rid of the storm. Either way, he's with us. That's the point. You know, as we're coming up on Thanksgiving here in just a few days, I couldn't. You know, I, I, I can't help. I I go back and I and I think about the whole story of the Pilgrims, and uh, and just the, the when if you if you ever get a chance to really read it in detail, the whole thing, what happened and what's going on about their lives, it's amazing. It's um the the. Uh, the perseverance they had in what they went through. See, the story of the pilgrims starts long before they ever came to this country. It starts with a, with a, with a pastor in a church during the times of, of Henry VIII. I may have heard of Henry VIII before, you know. You would not have wanted to be one of his wives, right? Well, there are a whole lot of other people around Henry VIII you wouldn't have wanted to be as well, trust me. And it starts in a time, and what's going on, there's all this upheaval in the church. Is the church led out of Rome? Is the church led by the, the king? Who leads the church? How is this going? And this was the beginning of, of the, the era of the Reformation when, when, when the Holy Spirit started moving upon men and women in different places. And, and they started going back and reading the Bible and going, hey, wait a minute. We've been getting some of this wrong. And these fires have been starting in people's hearts little by little. And there's this little church and this one place where this pastor stood up and says, you know, uh, I'm glad that we're reforming some of these things, but King Henry's not going far enough. And he said, you know what? We need to just be a people that worship God and live for him ourselves. And, and they decided to separate themselves from what was going on because they wanted to live a pure faith in their day, in their generation. That's all they wanted. They just wanted to worship God. They just wanted the freedom to live a life to worship him. That's all that they, they were normal, ordinary people, just like you and me, getting up, taking care of their farms, taking care of their businesses. They weren't looking to start a new thing in a new world. All of a sudden people start getting arrested. Just because they want to worship God, so they go. Hey, you know, over in Holland, we can go over there. There's a place where they, they will they will accept the fact that we can go over there and worship. So they go over to Holland, and uh, and they and they find a place where they actually have services in English, and, and they begin to worship there. But it it was it was so hard. They were outcast in society. They weren't being accepted, and and uh, became very very difficult living over there. Then they hear about this thing called the New World. They had no, no intention again to go and start something different and unique. There was already a colony here. They were going to go and begin a new colony north of that with the whole goal of we, we just want to live in this world in which we worship God with all that we are. We want to, to be the kingdom of God on earth here. Did they have perfect theology? Were they perfect people? Were they perfect? No, they were normal people. They were normal people. And finally, they, 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 they got into a, I mean, so they, they, they tried to come over a couple of different times. You know, they, they had two boats and they, they tried to sail in two boats twice and, and the one boat uh, was unable to make it. And, uh, and so, so uh, they had 120 of them. They had to pare it down to 102 of them and they head across the sea. The first year they were here, Half of them died. Half of them. You see, they understood they were a part of something bigger than themselves. They understood they were a part of something bigger than themselves. I'm not going to go into the whole story. This morning, I've done that several times before. We're going to. What I want us to do is this morning is focus on this, this concept that they had. There was one scripture that kind of drove them, that led them, and it was this. This is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Part of the Sermon on the Mount says, You are the light of the world. Jesus is speaking. How many of us know Jesus is the light of the world? Okay, now Jesus, the light of the world, is speaking, and this is what he says He says, You are the light of the world. You. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, do, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All of us would have sat here and say, yeah, Jesus is the light of the world. How many of us would stand up and say, I'm the light of the world? Well, that's what Jesus calls you the light of the world. See, you see, this is what it says in Ephesians. This is Ephesians chapter one, verse three. It says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me break that down for a minute. Lord, our master, Jesus, his name, salvation, Christ, the King who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You already have every blessing that you need in him. You already have it. And then he goes on, he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Do you hear what he's saying here? This is what the Apostle Paul is writing. He's saying, listen, before God created anything, before the first Adam came into existence, before energy became energy, before time even uh, uh, started, God conceived of you. You, specifically. And he placed each one of us exactly where he wanted us, in time, in space. He thought of you. You're not an accident. You're not a random bringing together of atoms, collocation of atoms. You are here intentionally and on purpose. You are part of something that is much bigger than you are. This is what it says in Psalm 139. Pastor Terry read this last week. For you formed my inward parts. This this is the psalmist talking to the Lord. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully, catch this word, wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. To be wonder, to be wonder is to be something so big you can't grasp it. Bigger than grasping. That's what wonder is. You were made with wonder. If you ever actually studied the science behind it, we can never actually plumb the depths of it or or get to the end of of how big it is when we start to see the wonder of all of it. He says, this is how God created you. And he goes on and he says this, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Catch this. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Your book, in your book, were written. What? Every one of them. Every one of what? The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Apostle Paul's just telling us what the psalmist told us. You see, God has a book. It is your life and it is written on it. Here's the thing though. Here's the thing. He will not force you to choose it. The very first king of the Northern kingdom, his name was Jeroboam. God told Jeroboam, I am going to take 10 tribes away from Rehoboam because of the sin of Solomon. And I am going to give them to you. And if you follow me with all of your heart, if you lead the people in worship to me, if you are a man after my own heart, you will, never have, uh, you will never lack a descendant on the throne. He gave Jeroboam the same opportunity he gave David. And Jeroboam said, wow, this is awesome. And God made him king as he willed. And Jeroboam said, but if I follow you, I've got to send all the people back to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's in the other nation. And suppose the people go back there and don't want to come back here. And he began to walk in fear rather than faith. And so he made two calves, put them in the northern kingdom. And he led began the complete moral demise of the northern kingdom. In his fear, he was part of something far bigger than himself. It just wasn't a good thing. You're a part of something far bigger than you, whether you like it or not. You don't get to opt in or opt out. You're in this life because you were created to be in this life, and you matter. Even not wanting to matter matters. Why? Because when you don't want to matter and and you are mean or nasty or don't do something that you should do, then the person that you didn't do it to or did do it to was just affected by you. And vice versa. We're not morally neutral beings. We were created as morally good I was listening to, and I, and I'm gonna, let me say this, let me make this statement first. And that, and that is wonderful. If you stop and think about it, really stop and think about it, contemplate it for a minute, how much you make a difference, how connected you are. I've said this before. Many people have heard me say this. If you know a thousand people, if you know a thousand people in your lifetime, which is not very many, if you start counting them, all you got to do is look at your phones your Facebook list. If you know a thousand people, that means you're two people away from a million, three people away from a billion. Two people away from a million, three people away from a billion. If you count the the years in which the average person lives just from the time of Abraham till now, your life, the average life will be 2%, 2% of the lifetime of all human beings from the time of Abraham to now. You matter. That, that is wonderful. That should cause us to wonder. That should cause us to see that we are connected to one another in a way that's beyond that, what we understand. And in fact, we live a life chasing that wonder. We live a life chasing it. I was listening to a message by um, Tim Keller, and he was quoting uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Is anybody here know who Tolkien is? Anybody heard of uh, The Lord of the Rings? Anybody heard of The Hobbit? He was the author of these books, and he and he said this. This is what he said. He said, "In fairy tales, there's something that we chase after. In fairy tales, there's something that we're looking for in fairy tales." Whoops, I went ahead of myself here. He said, "We're we're 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 trying to escape time. We're trying to escape death. We're trying to hold communion with non-human beings." We're trying to find perfect love from which uh, we, we never depart and we want to triumph over, over evil. Does that not sound like the plot of every Marvel movie? Come on. We want to escape time. We want to escape death. We want to hold um, relationships, communion with non-human beings. I mean, we're right in the middle of Marvel Universe right here. We want to find perfect love from which we are never departed and we want to triumph over evil. We run after this stuff, we chase after this stuff, we live for this stuff, or we escape with this stuff. But what does our culture give us? What does our culture tell us? What are we told? What is put into us? What is it that affects our psyche? What do we hear the message? I'm gonna quote Richard Dawkins here. This is, a, this is from his work, River Out of Eden, A Darwinian View of Life. And this is what he says. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. How does that make you feel? There's no escape from time. There's no escape from death. We're alone in the universe. Perfect love does not exist. We should have no expectation of ultimate justice. And can we even really declare evil is evil? I I mean, I would have to ask the person who was just absolutely violated, say, hey, can you really call that evil? You see, what, what, what psychologists have gone on to say is we actually can't live without meaning, without purpose. And so what, what, what I've heard, I've, I've listened to debates, many of the debates, what I've heard, no, there is no meaning, there is no purpose in the universe. So what we have to do is we have to make up our own purpose. We have to make up our own purpose and we have to find something for us to live by. And what does that lead to? That leads to us getting our identity based on what we feel. You see, what's interesting is we pit, pit, we, we, put, we pit the mind against reason. And that's been done throughout history. The ancient Greeks did the same thing, but they did it opposite. They said, we need to live by our reason and suppress our feelings. Your reason is the real you. That's who you really are. You need to suppress your emotions and not let them out. That's not how we live. What we're told is the real you, how do you feel? Let that out. That's who you are. and no, And don't let anybody tell you any different. Well, does the Bible tell us to suppress our emotions? No. Does the Bible tell us to suppress our reason? No. The Bible says we need to understand with reason. We need to understand with emotions and we need to bring all of those in conformity to Christ. It's not don't have feelings. It's not don't have reason. It's submit them all to Christ so you have proper reason and the proper use of feelings so that you can enter into the wonder he has for you. But you see, that's not where the culture leaves it, right? Because what does the culture say is, is, is uh, uh, um, uh, hang on, I wanna make sure I quote it right. I only have the right to decide what is right and wrong for me. Anybody ever heard that? I don't have the right to decide what's right and wrong for you. I, 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 I have no right to tell someone else what they should believe or how they should live. Well, I have to ask a question. Didn't? Isn't that telling me how I should think? <laughs> That's just a bit hypocritical, isn't it? You see, let, let's put this all together here. So if, if, if at bottom, this is blind, pitiful universe, there is no escape. There is nothing. So what do I have to do? Psychologists tell us, I have to have meaning. I have to have purpose. So make one up. Make one up. Okay, make one up. And how, where do you get it? You get it from how you feel. And by the way, how you feel now, that's truth. And I can't tell you that it's any different. And, and I'm sitting here looking at this and saying, and they say Christianity is the delusion. What just got made up in order to live? I'm gonna get my purpose for something I make up and then say, I can't tell someone else. Listen, I'm gonna go back to Psalm 2. My heart shouldn't hurt because somebody is saying this. My heart should hurt because where that leads them is slavery, not freedom. I don't wanna tell somebody how to live in order to force something on them. I wanna tell somebody how to be free in order to release them to be who they were created to be. And I don't get it because I think it's right, because I always have to adjust that. I get it because he demonstrates what is right. And how do I know that? I'm going to read here from Scottish theologian James Stewart, who is Jesus. He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men, yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming. Yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him and the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was half so compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red, hot, scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love. Yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they would ever expect to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions, yet for sheer stark realism, he has all of our stark realists soundly beaten. He was a servant of all, washing the disciples' feet, yet he masterfully strode into the temple and the hucksters and the money changers fell over one another to get away from the mad rush and the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at the last, himself, he did not save. There is nothing, there is nothing in history like the union of contrasts which confronts us in the gospel. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. Wonder, it's an escape from time, an escape from death. It's holding communion with non-human beings. It's finding perfect love from which we are never parted. It's triumph over evil. Where is the one place, the one place that all of that actually converges in reality? The cross, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. At the cross, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Time is overcome, death is overcome, communion with God is enabled, perfect love is poured out, and evil is conquered. See, this is not a fairy tale or an escape from reality. This is not denying reality or ignoring our inner being, but in the sheer stark reality of the love of God overcoming gratuitous, malicious, intentional evil by the real facts and the events in time and history of the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. That's no fairy tale. See, you're a part of something far bigger than yourself. You're a part of something far bigger than yourself. After 40 days of living on the earth, appearing over and over to his disciples, back from the dead in a physical body, eating meals with them. Matthew records this in, in, the, in, the tw- in this last chapter, the 28th chapter, starting in the 18th ber- verse. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There was a man who heard this message and hated it. And he decided his purpose in life was to stamp this out. He got letters from the government with permission to go place to place, to arrest people, to kill people, to do whatever he could. And he said he was serving God by doing it. Until the Lord Jesus himself appears to him on the road and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This man was, a, it was literally a Bible genius. If we began to really truly study the word of God and understand what he wrote and understood what he understood, uh, the, the way that he understood the message in the scriptures, he said something, he was struck by something, something hit him deep to the core of his being. He said, oh my goodness, God has done something. He has now opened up the nations to be able to see and hear and understand who the living God is, to have an escape from time, to have an escape from death, to be able to enter into a communion with someone who is non-human, their very creator, to be able to experience perfect love from which they can never be removed to experience the full triumph over evil and he lived passionately nothing stopped him from this and the message he had for us over and over go back and read his letters just read them quickly don't stop and pause through them just read them quickly what's the message over and over don't give up don't quit persevere be diligent Jesus is with you, he is returning, you have a purpose in this world, he has given you his spirit to lead you, to guide you, to assist you, encourage one another, walk this out with one another. To the end of the earth, you are a part of something bigger than yourself, on the ship, the, um, the Mayflower, as I had said earlier in the story, there were two ships, there was the Mayflower and, um, uh, I can't remember the name of the other one, Muse with an S. Speedway, thank you, seven points, <laughs> come on Wednesday night, you'll know what that means, <laughs> um and they they actually the the pilgrims had saved up their money, they got some sponsors and they purchased the speedway, and they hired a crew and that crew was what they intended to take them over and they They had the vessel actually investigated and and thought it to be a seaworthy vessel and so they they went out the first time and uh it began to not be seaworthy; they began to have some problems, so they had to bring it in, dock it, and they worked on it again. And they got it out again. Um, and it didn't get very far again. They had to turn around and come back. Um, and so they decided after the second time, they decided, well, you know, we're not gonna, t- we're not gonna chance this vessel. So originally that 120 who were gonna go and it, and it got pared down to 102. Now what's really fascinating, what we've learned through history is that very likely the vessel wasn't actually damaged. The crew most likely sabotaged it why because they ended up selling it super cheap and the crew bought it fixed it and used it to do lots of things with it yeah so about 18 of the original couldn't go but what that did is it put them way way late in the season and so they spent 66 days uh in this ship now these aren't sailors 66 days of rough seas. Okay, I've been offshore with nine foot swales and I went, I don't ever want to do that again. (laughs) I can't imagine being offshore in rough seas in a a sailboat like this. I mean, the the sickness and the difficulty, they had storm after storm after storm. And on one of these storms, there's a guy named John Hallen. And John Hallen fell overboard and he just happened to catch hold of one of the trailing ropes. In rough, stormy seas. And they were able to pull him on board. How many people think that was a coincidence? They've estimated that John Halland is responsible, descendants responsible for about 10 million Americans. Furthermore, four presidents are in those descendants. You're a part of something much bigger than yourself. you're a part of something much bigger than yourself. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. You've been chosen by God to be in this generation, in this time, in this place. In the book of Acts, Paul is giving a message, and he refers to David, and he says to David, he said, David lived the purposes of God in his generation. I've prayed that many times. Can I say this honestly? The thing I'm most grateful for is his grace. Because even as I share this message, even as I understand the depth of this message, even as I understand how important it is, I think about all the times and the ways I've screwed it up, I've done it wrong, I haven't gotten it right. And that makes me think of how many more times I'm going to screw it up, not get it right and do it wrong. But you see, the thing I'm a part of is not me. I'm a part of something that's bigger than me. And that includes his grace. The call to be a part of something bigger than yourself is to embrace him and allow his grace to work in you, to bring his forgiveness, to bring his cleansing, to give you his empowerment. We are to embrace the word of God, hold on to his word from it. We are given all truth and how we figure out how to navigate through all the craziness in this world. We are to look with our eyes and see where is there suffering around us? How, Lord Jesus, can I alleviate that? And we are to know that the Holy Spirit has, come and affirmed in us his word, attested to the truth of him returning and enables us and empowers us to make it when we don't think we can take the next step. We've not been left alone, just the opposite. We're a part of something. And brothers and sisters, that means I need you, you need me, and together we need him. That's how the pilgrims made it that's how they had that first thanksgiving that's how we can have ours in a couple of days amen